Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, July 4th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, July 1st, and we have our friend TruthVids here once again to help us address Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? This is part 21 of our series. And it is tentatively not subtitled. We were grousing about that before the program and haven't come up with one yet. Weissman's smear campaign or something close. And that's because this is exactly what Weissman has done throughout this chapter, is try to smear Christian identity and to seed line. Hello, TruthFits. Thank you for joining us once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, Weissman's now just going to find as many quotes as he can from all various sources and then try to make it like two seed line copied that and that because of that, it's invalid. And that the idea that if you just find some book somewhere that mentions anything similar, it immediately discredits you know, what someone's trying to say is just silly. Uh, I'm sure that any belief in the world, if you, you will be able to find something in Jewish writing that's in some way similar, and that doesn't mean that it somehow discredits it. Be, uh, all Jewish lies are, have to have some degree of truth in them. If not, they, they wouldn't be believed. And the, you know, the best lies in the world often are closer to the truth, but they just have a little twist in them to lead you stray. Right, Bill? Well, well, absolutely. I agree. And and that's really what Weissman is doing. It is an extension of the same thing that the Jews use themselves to discredit the scriptures and Christianity that they'll bring up. Um, Krishna and try to claim that Krishna predated Christ, which isn't true. And and in order to discredit Christianity, or they'll bring up other aspects of Mesopotamian or um, Persian or, or Egyptian beliefs or, or religion and take them out of context and use them to discredit Christianity or the Old Testament even. It, it's It's a scam. It, it's just because something is is in some Jewish writing somewhere doesn't mean that it's definitely always wrong, because like you said, there's a lot of truth even in the Talmud, along with the lies and and the disputations against the law. And in yeah, fact, you have the same with the gatekeepers. You know, they'll give you ninety percent of the truth, but it's the important part is what they lie about. And, you know, in order to sound legitimate, they have to get as close to the truth as they can, because then people start to believe and follow them. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Earlier in our review of his book, discussing his comments on page 23, we showed how statements by Weissman revealed that he himself did not believe that either Christ or his apostles had represented truth, as well as some of the later prophets such as Zechariah. And that was where he said that the concept, and I quote Charles Weissman, 
The concept of a second god, which caused evil in the world, was primarily formed during the exile from 585 to 515 BC, being the result of Babylonian and Zoroastrian influence. And his statements in support of that claim ignored references to Satan, demons, and devils, which are found throughout the Old Testament, and then claim that such passages in the New Testament are mistranslated or misinterpreted. Then further claiming that the serpent was nullified by Christ, he denied many statements of the apostles and of Christ himself in his revelation. So it became apparent to me at that point in, in this series, in this address of this book, that Weissman is not even a true Christian. Now here in this chapter, Weissman corroborated that conclusion once again, where he compared the labeling of certain people as serpents, devils, and vipers in the New Testament to examples of the often unrighteous demonization of men throughout history. And he said that since the Jews have long been the self-sworn enemy of Christendom, they have been portrayed by many Christians throughout history as being of a devilish origin. It is a small step then to make them out to be literal descendants of the devil or Satan. And doing that, Weissman unabashedly demoted Yahshua Christ to the level of a common slanderer, rather than recognizing that God incarnate was bringing the light of truth to men. Is Christ just a slanderer calling people devils and serpents and vipers who really aren't? devils and serpents and vipers. They're just poor, persecuted Jews. That's how Weissman's defending them. <laughs> how familiar does that sound? So once again, Weissman proved to us that he is no Christian. And I think they were the two major highlights in, in the book which showed that Weissman could not have been a Christian, aside from all his other lies. Now, in this fifth chapter of his book, What About the Seedline Doctrine, which is titled Sources of Satanic Seedline Beliefs, Weissman continues to slander us since he attempts to associate our doctrine with the various manifestations of mysticism which have been found throughout history. We hope to already have proven that it is Weissman himself who believes in such mysticism. We, what we, to Seedline, we are pragmatic. We believe that inheritance comes through the natural order which Yahweh God had created, and not through the twisted philosophical or Gnostic concepts of men. So to us, seed is offspring. A father is an ancestor. And brethren are kindred of the same race. And you cannot overcome the reality of God's creation with philosophy.
The apostles spoke against that with the wisdom of this world. So to Weissman, all of these terms have some other significance, some other meaning, which defies their, their original use in scripture. So now as we proceed with his book on page 44, Weissman accuses us of following Gnostics. And, and we're going to see the extent of that, right? At least in part. Under the heading Gnostic Sources, Weissman says, Gnosticism is a system of belief combining ideas derived from Greek philosophy, Oriental mysticism, and heretical Christianity. It stresses salvation through gnosis, and intuitive knowledge in spiritual matters. Christian Gnosticism was an, was an attempt to separate Christianity from its past by infusing some of its concepts with pagan wisdom. I, I would say that Weissman attempts to separate Christianity from its past by disconnecting it with the Old Testament entirely on a racial basis, because he's ignoring it or, or willfully refusing to accept the historically recorded origin of the Jewish people who aren't Israelites, right? So Weissman's doing the same thing he accuses Gnosticism of doing, just in a different manner. But what he says here is too on the surface. However, we would say that Oriental Judaism, rather than Oriental mysticism, was <laughs> injected into Gnosticism. As Jews had no organic part with scripture, although they have preserved a form of it and have claimed its heritage for themselves. While they have also been the chief purveyors of so-called Oriental mysticism, Throughout modern history, it's really Oriental Judaism. So Weissman continues for, for one other short paragraph before we comment again. In the other Bible, that's the title of the book he's citing, the other Bible. In the other Bible, which is a collection of ancient esoteric texts, we find under the section diverse Gnostic texts, writings from Gnostic groups called Cainites, Sethians, and Ophites. Some of their ancient pagan wisdom included beliefs about Cain's demonic origin and devils mating with Jews, with, I'm sorry, with Jews, yeah, with humans. And, and I'm, I'm saying that, I, I made that slip because I'm thinking, about a note that I didn't actually add here. And that's the fact that the only way that pagans would know about Cain is if those pagans were really Jews. Because how would a pagan know about Cain without the Hebrew scripture? And, and who cared about the Hebrew scripture in, in ancient times, except for Christians and Jews? So if Gnostics are writing about Cain, those Gnostics aren't pagans, they're Jews. And, and 
these Jews have been the purveyors of paganism. It is the religion of their father, right? Now, Weissman offers a citation from this book, the so-called Other Bible. And he says, there also broke out another heresy called that of the Cainites, for they glorify Cain as if conceived by some potent power which operated him. The other Bible, according to Weissman's citation, had gotten that information from Tertullian. Tertullian being one of the early church fathers that wrote against the Gnostic heresies. It wasn't only Irenaeus. Irenaeus wrote about them at the greatest length, but several other church fathers addressed them. So saying this, by supplying this quotation, Weissman insinuates that we glorify Cain by speaking the truth about the events of Genesis chapters 3 and 4 and the words of Christ in John 8.44. In truth, we only seek to prove how it is true where Yahshua Christ had said to his adversaries that their father was a devil and also the first murderer describing Cain's descendants in that manner. We only seek to clarify what Christ himself had said. But to Weissman, Christ was a mere slanderer rather than a bearer of truth. He was only name-calling those poor persecuted Jews. So he didn't really mean what he said. That's Weissman's opinion that he's projecting here. Now I and think it makes perfect sense that the Cainites or descendants of Cain would glorify Cain and the fallen angels. That's what you would expect. Um, but we are not in any way glorifying, um, you know, the the two seed line doctrine or anything like that. All we're doing is identifying our enemy and trying to make our race aware of what's going on. That's all we're doing. And not at all in any way, you know, promoting a duality, God, or glorifying them at all. Well, well absolutely. And, and that's because that's an obligation. Christ identified them for us. He showed us how to identify them. And he told us where they came from when he called them serpents and vipers. And, and the offspring of vipers, where that we see that phrase generation of vipers, it means offspring of vipers. So Christ did that for us for a reason. And he wasn't just name calling the parents of these poor persecuted Jews. He was telling a plain fact about them. He was telling a historical truth about them. Otherwise, we have to imagine that our God is a slanderer. That's what Weissman's doing here. It's, in, it's incredulous. There's no way that Charles Weissman truly believed or worshipped Jesus Christ, God incarnate. He rejects him in, imagine, just by imagining that. I had a couple of other thoughts. Maybe they will come back to me. At this point, Weissman continues citing his source, and now we're on page 45 of his book. And this name is probably not familiar to most Christians, but 
the church fathers, several of them, had actually mentioned it. Yaldabaoth, Yaldabaoth, a deity, created woman, Eve. Angels seduced her and generated sons from her. The other angels came and admired her beauty and called her Eve. They desired her and from her generated sons who are called angels. Eve sinned when she committed adultery with angels. And that's from that same source, the other Bible, and it's drawing on Gnostic literature. And, and the Gnostics, there were actually several sets of Gnostics and several Gnostic systems over the several couple of hundred year period that Gnosticism what was popular. They didn't all agree, but they were all extremely heretical and rooted in Judaism and Jewish philosophy. So Weissman responding to, to that citation from his book, The Other Bible, he goes on in response and he says, an early church father, Irenaeus, in his treatise against heresies, also spoke of the Gnostic doctrines of the Ophites and Sethians. He shows how they believed that angelic powers came to Eve, admiring her beauty and falling in love with her, begat sons by her. And he's citing Irenaeus' against heresies there. And, and first, I have also often made the assertion that Gnosticism was Jewish and that Philo Judahius, who was a Judean writer in Alexandria, was the first notable Gnostic, even though he is not recognized as a Gnostic, per se, by modern scholarship. He was the first notable Gnostic, at least in the sense that he was, while he was writing in Alexandria, which was the apparent birthplace of Gnosticism, his purpose was also an attempt, just like the Gnostics, to reconcile or combine the Hebrew scriptures with Greek philosophy and non-scriptural aspects of Judaism. So I often label Philo as a proto-Gnostic, and I'm convinced that the label absolutely fits. Now, we shall not do a full survey of Gnosticism to address Weissman's charges. However, the Gnostics bore many strange tales, which they contrived in an effort to pervert the word of God into Jewish sexual fantasies and a corruption of all truth. I am convinced that their overt purpose was to corrupt the concepts of Christianity and thereby hinder the gospel of Christ. But the Gnostics did not even believe that the supreme being or heavenly father of the Christians and the God of creation were one and the same. And many Gnostics esteemed the God of creation to have been an evil entity, contrary to the supreme being. This aspect of Gnosticism evidently came through Platonism. They also frequently, but not always, rejected Christ as God and even denied his death and resurrection. More significantly, 
Many Gnostics believe Christ was a man who became God through gnosis or knowledge, which is also the basis for humanism that we see manifest in 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 the um in the in the Enlightenment and and the Age of Reason, as the Jews had been emancipated and started to have a profound effect on European philosophy. So this is where if they couldn't destroy Christianity, instead they would corrupt it and pervert it. Right. They attempted to corrupt Christianity through 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 all of these Gnostic gospels and, and these other concepts and ideas that they produced and that they sought to corrupt Christianity by injecting these ideas into these false do- false gospels, the gospel of Thomas, um, that, that there was a gospel or a book of Judas Iscariot or something. I, I forget all the titles that there were apocalypses of, of um, various apostles. So they really tried to inject these false ideas into these other gospels and disseminate them throughout the Christian world. And they, that they were defeated by the many early church fathers who stood against them and who clung to the that these books of scripture that were actually handed down by the apostles. And that's what a Catholic is. That's what the word Catholic originally meant. Catholic catahollis, down whole. That's what it means. And the original Catholic in, in the true sense of the word was a Christian who accepted all of the books of scripture passed down to them by the apostles themselves. So they rejected um, Marcion, who rejected the Old Testament, was rejected by the Catholic church fathers. And these Gnostics were rejected by the Catholic church fathers because they were introducing all these other phony scriptures, false scriptures. The Jews were rejected by the church fathers because they rejected the New Testament scriptures and the gospel of Christ. So the that's the original meaning of the, of the word Catholic, and the original Catholics accepted the entire scripture as we know it, Old Testament and New, with the exception of the Book of Esther, because the Book of Esther was not originally accepted by the Orthodox churches, and with the addition of a few other books, such as the Wisdom of Solomon. So... Basically, their canon was very much like ours with a few small differences, and they withstood Marcionites, Jews, and Gnostics, and didn't accept their their fables or their rejections of Scripture. So that's a real Catholic. Here, however, it should be clear that none of these fabulous um, embellishments of Scripture by these Gnostics which Weissman has illustrated here, had been repeated by traditional two seed line identity Christians. We did not get our ideas or concepts about scripture from Gnosticism. We did not ever um, make all of these embellishments. I mean, particular individuals may have done it at one time or another, but no, generally, two seed line identity Christians have never adopted any of this Gnostic um, 
mythology or, or fables. That's what they really are, Jewish fables, these Gnostic fables. And this is certainly not representative of anything that we profess at Christogenia. Weissman is projecting the beliefs of these early Jews onto us, where it is clear that the early Jews had only corrupted the truth of Scripture, which we do not profess, which corruptions we do not profess. Now he continues by comparing us to Masons, but it is really only another variation of these Gnostic fables. You, you could link these Masonic beliefs right into the Gnostic beliefs. They're really not something different. They're actually a, a blending of Gnostic and Kabbalistic professions. And the Kabbalah varies from Gnosticism somewhat. It's just um, evolving. They've, you know, readdressed it re-examined it, improved it to make it more enticing to people. But it all originates from the Jewish mind, from the pits of hell. Absolutely. So under the heading Masonic Beliefs, Weissman says, these same ideas of the satanic seedline doctrine. Now, I don't know how he lumps our doctrine together with what the Gnostics believe, because we don't believe all of those interpolations, embellishments, and fables. These same ideas of the Satanic Seedline Doctrine are also found in Masonic teachings. In his notorious Masonic book, Morals and Dogma, Albert Pike writes the following. So he's quoting Albert Pike. The image of Yahweh reflected upon matter, became the serpent spirit, Satan, the evil intelligence, Eve, created by Yadabaoth, had by his sons children that were angels like themselves. Now, this Yadabaoth was a Gnostic equivalent to the demiurge of Philo, the evil creator of the physical world. I may have meant to write the demiurge of Plato there. I may have been mistaken. That should say the Demiurge of Plato. I'm sorry. And the Demiurge is the evil creator of the physical world in the Gnostic mind. While Gnostic material was basically lost in the early centuries of the Christian era, much of it has been rediscovered by archaeologists at Nag Hammadi where a trove of Gnostic documents was found in 1945. However, that would not have been known to Albert Pike because he didn't write this, that this quote, this book was published in 1871. But Yadabeoth and many of the Gnostic teachings were addressed and described by early church writers. Yadabeoth was mentioned often by Irenaeus in his treatise against heresies and by Tertullian in his book Against All Heresies and also by Origen in his book Against Celsus. All these men are from the, 
that the third and the second and third centuries, I believe. Irenaeus is the second, late second century, and Origen and Tertullian are the third century. And finally, by Hippolytus, who I think was fourth century, but I don't quite remember, in his book, The Refutation of All Heresies. So all these early Christian writers were refuting these heresies. And, and if you look at what they're addressing, they're addressing Jews, and they're addressing Marcionites, and they're addressing Gnostics, for the greatest part. I'd say probably 90% of the material, at least. However, once again, we see here something which is actually quite different than what we profess of two seed line, of the creation of God, or of Genesis chapter 3, and the nature of the Nephilim, the giants, the serpents, the devils, and the satyrs, devils or demons. None of these so-called teachings of the Gnostics resemble anything that we hold from our scriptures. But now Weissman cites another Freemason who lived much more recently, and I believe Manley P. Hall had died right around 1990. And Weissman says, it is obvious from these statements that certain Masons have picked up on Jewish and Gnostic teachings and beliefs concerning Eve and Satan. Well, that's mostly true. Another well-known Mason, Manley P. Hall, similarly states, in chapter 4, verse 1 of Genesis, Eve says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. This indicates that Cain was not the child of Adam, but of the archangel, Samael, the old serpent. The rabbins, or rabbis, insist that Cain was the son of Samael and Abel the son of Adam. Two orders of human beings are therefore reported. And that's only half true because not all of the Talmudic literature insists that Cain was the son of Samael. That only comes from one Targum and probably a few comments or references throughout the Talmud. But the other Targums, which were preserved in the Talmud, don't have that. They don't have that version of Genesis chapter 4. So Weissman's telling a half-truth. Manley P. Hall was a Freemason, no doubt, and wrote many books on occult subjects, Freemasonry and other related topics, the most famous of them being The Secret Teaching of All Ages. And I have a copy here in Clifton's library, but I've hardly looked at it. However, here Hall was not following an occult source. Rather, he is citing the Targum Jonathan, or Pseudo-Jonathan, of which the date of authorship is arguable. Some sources try to make it very old, and others try to make it no more recent, or, or no more ancient than the 14th century. So the date of authorship of Pseudo-Jonathan is very arguable. And it's called Pseudo-Jonathan because there is doubt as to whether the author of the Targums of the Torah 
is the same author of the Targums of the Prophets, which were written by a Jew named Jonathan who was known to be historical, I think about the 8th or 9th century. So, so that's argued as to whether or not the Targum Jonathan is really that particular Jonathan. But in any event, it is widely accepted to have originated in Palestine. However, the Targum, which is an interpretation of Hebrew scripture in another language, did not originate in the Talmud or with the rabbis who wrote the Talmud. So here, where Weissman had cited Hall, he omits the fact that Manly P. Hall was actually citing an Aramaic Targum and not any Gnostic literature. And by that, he creates a lie. Furthermore, it cannot be claimed that the writer of the Targum was a Gnostic or was passing himself passing on things which came from Gnostic sources, since he did not include any of the significantly Gnostic teachings in his Targum. There's very little in there that you could possibly point to and say, oh, that's Gnostic, or, or there's nothing about Yaldabaoth, right? <laughs> Instead, the angel Samuel was a subject of the Enoch literature, and the Enoch literature is not Gnostic either, having been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, it's the Enoch literature, which many Jews have used to corrupt into their version of, of Gnosticism. It's one of their sources. The Targum can only be understood to have been an early medieval interpretation of scripture, which seems to agree with the two seed line contention that Genesis chapter four, verse one is corrupt. And that therefore, this one medieval interpreter sought to correct it by adding understanding which was gained elsewhere, but not necessarily from Gnostic sources. But we do not rely on this Targum to support our two seed line doctrine, even if Clifton Emmerheiser had pointed it out in the past, which he has. Additionally, this Targum Jonathan, or Pseudo-Jonathan, as it is doubted by some scholars that this portion actually belonged to the writer of the Targums of other Targums known by that name, also makes elaborations on Genesis chapter 3, which are evidently based, at least in part, on certain writings attributed to Enoch. And we do not make those same elaborations. Neither are they required to prove our doctrine. In other words, we don't, we could dispose of the Targum Jonathan. It's sort of useful to us in order to show that even medieval rabbis or medieval interpreters of the Hebrew had struggled with Genesis 4.1. And that's what it's useful for. But we don't need it to prove to sea line. Now where Weissman continues and cites Nesta Webster in order to connect our profession, profession of two seed line to the Rosicrucians, we will catch him in yet another lie. And this is a... I, 
I just wanted to add, um, I don't know about Manly P. Hall, but Albert Pike, he was definitely Jewish. And he was actually a brigadier general for the Confederate Army. And he's the only one who ended up with a statue of himself. He did like a few months in prison and then he was released. Like, you know, any typical Jew on the opposing side. Right. I, I never trusted or liked Albert Pike. And I believe that most um, modern Southern nationalists dislike Albert Pike. He, he was born in Boston. He was a, a Yankee transplant who was an adventurer in the Southwest and ended up being a lawyer. He was educated. He wasn't stupid. He ended up being a lawyer defending um, the rights of Indian tribes in the Southwest. So he was an early social justice warrior is what he was. But because of his experience with the Indians of the Southwest, when he became, and I don't know how he became a general in the Confederate Army, I don't, but when he became a general in the Confederate Army, he was assigned to the westernmost states of the Confederacy. I believe um, Arkansas or Missouri, if I'm not mistaken, one or the other, and to interact with, with the Indians there and possibly in Oklahoma. So the South had um, claims on Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri, although Missouri was always kind of a um, flipping back and forth state. It was a Yankee state in most respects. It wasn't really Southern. And I don't think it, it, it never actually succeeded from the Union, Missouri, even though the South claimed it. So it was a slave state. So yeah. I, I, I agree that Albert Pike was probably some sort of agent or, or was doing some in some capacity was was helping or assisting the north the cause of the north i don't know how it is i don't know exactly how his um entire wartime career was what events unfolded but i know he spent it in the indian territory probably helping to neutralize any assistance the south might get from indians i'm sure <laughs> And, and also, um, Nessa Webster, she wrote some uh, many things, um, you know, on how evil the Jews were. So I'm surprised Wiseman is going to include her here. Um, right. Nesta Webster what was, um, she, she's an excellent source for understanding. And I used her. I, I mean, I used her material to a great extent in, in my series, which I'm going to mention here later, on the Jews in medieval Europe. And, and she's an excellent source for helping to unwind and, and discern the Jewish involvement in the secret societies and subversive movements. Even though she herself didn't come to full awareness of Jewish treachery and the Jewish role until she had written that book and, and several others. I mean, she, she always knew they were there, and she did very good speaking about their nature and their actions, but she didn't put the whole picture together, I don't think, until rather late in her life in the 1930s. So, But she's an excellent source. On page 46, this is um, 
Weissman trying to slander to see line Christian identity with the beliefs of the Masons by projecting the Masonic beliefs upon us. Nesta Webster supports this. Speaking of the Rosicrucians, an age-old Masonic group involved in secret teachings entrusted to a few. And now quoting Nesta Webster's book, Secret Societies and Subversive Movements, in a book by the leader of this group, we find it solemnly stated that according to Max Heindel, Eve cohabited with serpents in the Garden of Eden, that Cain was the offspring of her union with the Lucifer Samael, and that from this divine progenitor, the most virile portion of the human race descended, the rest being merely the progeny of human parents. Now, now this is really just that this is a combination of two earlier belief systems because the Lucifer Samael, I don't know if he's mentioned in any Gnostic literature, but the name comes from the Enoch literature. And for that reason, it came into the Targum Jonathan. And the Targum is not Gnostic. It, it is a, um, an attempt probably by a rabbi or an early Jew. And if the, the Targum is truly early, it may have been a Judean, but I doubt that. But it's a possibility. But the Targum was an attempt of an early Jewish rabbi to, or learned Jew to interpret the book of Genesis from, from its Hebrew into Aramaic. And even though the two languages are very similar, they also have many differences. And Targums were necessary for that exact reason from the time of Nehemiah. And the making of Targums, even though they're not called by that name, is actually mentioned in the book of Nehemiah, in the Bible. Because after the people came back from the captivity in Babylon, in, in three generations, their language did shift. And, and they couldn't really understand the original Hebrew as well as their great-great-grandparents did, as well as that they should have. So I'm digressing again. Here in Nesta Webster, in this citation by Weissman, we see the Gnostic view of Cain, combined with the mention of Samael as his father, which is found in the Targum Jonathan. The Gnostic view is clear, where it speaks here of the most virile portion of the human race as having come from Cain. And where earlier in the chapter, in this chapter, Weissman wrote of the Gnostics who glorify Cain as if conceived by some potent power which operated in him, or which operated him. Therefore, it also becomes evident that Webster's source seems to have been a Jew with access to the Targums and what was known of Gnosticism before the Nag Hammadi manuscripts were discovered, because this is also back in the 1920s, right, when this was written. Therefore, I'm sorry, but Max Heindel, from whom this quote is taken, from whom 
Nesta Webster had relayed this information. Max Heindel, who was born Carl Louis von Grasshoff, and who was evidently not a Jew, was a contemporary of Webster. He was a Christian so-called occultist and mystic, and he was a Rosicrucian initiate. In turn, the Rosicrucians were founded in the 17th century upon manifestos, which clearly combine references to Kabbalah, Hermeticism, alchemy, and Christian mysticism, according to a book titled Lodges, Orders, and the Rosy Cross by Pierre Martin. When Webster wrote this citing Heindel, she was discussing Rosicrucians. However, Weissman neglected to include an important statement which immediately followed this one which he had quoted, which we will supply as Webster proceeded and she said, readers of the present work will recognize this as not the legend of masonry, but of the Jewish Kabbalah, which has already been quoted in this context. And she's relating to a citation earlier in her own book that we're going to get to this evening because Weissman also quotes that and lies about that. Webster goes on to say, whether this also forms a part of Steiner's teaching, it is impossible to say. Since his real doctrines are only known to his inner circle, even some of his admirers amongst the Steiner Matutina, and Matutina is a Spanish word which means mourning, and perhaps Webster meant among his earliest admirers. While consulting him as an oracle, these admirers of Steiner thought that he was an oracle, are not admitted to the secrets of his grades of initiation and have been unable to succeed in obtaining from him a charter. Meanwhile, they themselves do not disclose to the neophytes whom they seek to win over that they are members of any secret association. This is quite in accordance with the methods of Weishaupt's initiating brothers. Nestor Webster's um, purpose was to show that all these groups were interconnected. The Freemasons, um, Adam Weishaupt's Illuminati, the Rosicrucians, that these Rosicrucians and Freemasons had actually come from the same source as Weishaupt's Illuminati. It was the Jews behind it all. It took Webster quite some time to reach that conclusion, but she ultimately did reach that conclusion. So yeah, Webster no believed... I'm oh, sorry. sorry. Go on. I was going to say every group at the, you know, the leader would always be a Jew guiding them or corrupting them. And then those Jews would meet secretly and no doubt, you know, guide the whole thing behind the scenes. Sort of like the all right today, right? Exactly, yeah. No different. So Nesta Webster believed and asserted that the Rosicrucian teachings come from the Kabbalah. And in our own survey of the Jews in medieval Europe, we made the conclusion that the teachings of Freemasonry also come from the Kabbalah. 
I didn't think when I did that series that I really had to mention or get into Rosicrucians since the links between Freemasons and Rosicrucians are well known. The Steiner, which she mentions here, is Rudolf Steiner, another supposedly Christian mystic and founder of a Masonic Lodge with Rosicrucian influences. And he was also a contemporary of Heindel and Nesta Webster herself. So Weissman created a lie where he did not publish the entire statement of Webster's, as it is all relative to his claims, and where he comes to a contrary conclusion as that which Webster had made in the portion which he omitted, he says, it is clear that the Masons and Rosicrucians obtained their teaching of satanic seed line from Gnostic teachings, since we find the same words and concepts employed in Gnostic beliefs. So notice how Weissman skipped over the part where mentioned, where, where Westman, where, where, I'm sorry, where Nesta Webster said that this came from the Kabbalah. He skipped over that to blame the Gnostics because he could blame these ancient mystics without actually putting it on the Jews, right? If he mentions the Kabbalah, then he has to bring the Jews in there. <laughs> and to me, that's like pretty dishonest, right? It really is. But that's what he did. Yeah, they always create a boogeyman, anyone but the Jews or descendants of Cain. Right. And he mentions the Kabbalah later on, but he he's not connecting Gnosticism to Jews. He's not connecting the Masons and the Rosicrucians to Jews. He's connecting them to these mystic beliefs. But it all came from Jews. It all came from the Kabbalah. Well, Gnosticism did not come from the Kabbalah, but the Kabbalah came in part from Gnosticism. Okay. These Masons and Rosicrucians did not receive this teaching from Gnostics, but rather they received it from the Jewish Kabbalah, which was an intermediary from the Jewish Gnostics. He could never have skipped all... I, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm twisting what I, what, what I wrote. He could have skipped all of these intermediary sources or these intermediary witnesses, because they are only a continuum, continuum between Gnostics and the Kabbalah. But the entire continuum was carried by Jews, in spite of the many Christians who adopted it as their own. So now, as Weissman proceeds, he repeats another false claim. He says, in fact, some say the origins of Masonry are derived from Gnosticism which is pretty incredible. The seven founders of Freemasonry were all Gnostics. Gnosticism, as the mother of Freemasonry, has imposed its mark in the very center of the chief symbol of this association. It is Gnosticism, which is the real meaning of the G in the flamboyant star. And he's citing a book by Lady Queenborough titled Occult Theocracy. And this lady, Queenborough, whose given name, whose, whose birth name was Edith Starr Miller, came from a prominent Yankee family, and she married a British nobleman, 
which is where she got the title Lady Queenborough from. She also became an active in British fascist organizations until her early death in 1933 at the age of 45. She was evidently an associate of L. Fry, which is believed to mean Leslie Fry, who wrote under the name of Paquita de Shishmaref and is best known for her anti-Antichrist book, now some people call it an anti-Semitic book, right, titled Waters Flowing Eastward. This book, Occult Theocracy, was written with Fry, but was not published until after Lady Queenborough had died. But as we exhibited several years ago in our presentation on the Jews in medieval Europe, Freemasons did not begin as stonemasons, but as speculative masons who began to appear in England after John Dee introduced the Kabbalah into the court of Queen Elizabeth I and popularized it among British alchemists and other mystics. The alchemists of Europe had also already adopted the Jewish mysticism of the Kabbalah from where John Dee had gotten it. Freemasonry was the result in, in England, and it was not much different than Rosicrucianism on the continent. Properly, there were no Gnostics after Rome accepted Christianity as they were denounced as heretics, and they went off into oblivion. But there were Jews and Neoplatonists, and they were the creators of both Gnosticism and the Kabbalah, as well as the link between them. They used the Kabbalah for the seeds which planted their ideas and agendas among Christians, which resulted in both Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry. So to blame medieval Gnostics for Freemasonry is to conceal the fact that Jewish influence on European scientific inquiry through the promotion of the Kabbalah had been the real start of Freemasonry. Right, the idea that white Gnostics hid for centuries and emerged to create Freemasonry is silly. It can only have been these Jews who always rejected Christianity. Well, well, absolutely. And and there is much, um, that there is a plethora, and I presented a lot of it in, in my series on the Jews in medieval Europe. There was a plethora of original or firsthand sources from medieval Europe connecting the Kabbalah to the alchemists and in turn connecting John Dee to the alchemists and John Dee brings the Kabbalah to England. He's a, he's a um, admired in the court of Elizabeth I. He's very influential with her. He is her mystic and the English alchemists and, and, Englishmen, or, or I should say British, because this includes Scots and, and probably some Irishmen also, that the Englishmen of scientific inquiry and learning, anybody seeking that at that time, was attracted to the Kabbalah. And this happened in Germany, it happened in Austria, 
It happened everywhere in Europe in the 14, 15, 1600s. It happened everywhere. This was the fight that the Dominican monks were putting up against the, um, what, well, first against Reuschland. Johann Reuschlin, who, who was a, um, a German scholar, promoting the Kabbalah and the Talmud, and the Dominican monks wanted to stamp out the Kabbalah and the Talmud. And they didn't lose the battle, but they did lose the war, because the Kabbalah and Talmud were never stamped out, and the Jews went on to side with the Reformers against the Catholic Church and to actually help finance Martin Luther and, and help promote and, and get his, his books and his tracts printed and made popular. So the Jews <clears throat> had a considerable amount of influence and helped the Reformation succeed. And once they helped it succeed, they basically owned it. Calvin and, and what became of Lutheranism what were always highly amenable to the Jews. Luther understood their treachery later in his career, but it was too late. His church never followed him. He wrote on the Jews and, and their lies in 1543, and his church never accepted it. They never followed after him. So, Luther and, and Calvin and the other reformers created a monster, but perhaps Calvin was a part of the beast because this speculation, I don't think it's been proven, but this speculation that he himself was a crypto Jew. And, and there's a lot of other evils that came out of the Reformation, but the Protestants were in bed with the Jews from the beginning. And the Jews were using the Protestants to break the power of the Catholic Church. And that's what happened. And as soon as that happened, you, you have this um, age of parliamentary democracy emerge out of the ashes. And the problems that we have today all stem from that. So we, as a race, jumped from the frying pan right into the fire. There's no doubt. <laughs> so that's another digression. I'm sorry. This program might be three hours. <laughs> Now, now, Weissman brings up another Freemason and charlatan, and he says, Albert Pike, in his book, Morals and Dogma, often compares Gnostic mysteries, theories, ideas, and view of God. And I don't know if that should say views or not, but it's not my typo. With Masonic teaching, and he's referring us to the index digest of morals and dogma. So I guess he didn't actually read the book. But Pike himself, Pike was not much different than these other so-called Christian mystics, and I'm referring to Steiner and Heindel, as he also was only a follower of the Jews and their Kabbalah. Pike himself had said in Morals and Dogma that Kabbalah is the key of the occult sciences. So I don't know how Weissman missed that, but when he said that Weissman, he basically insinuated that Pike had gotten his, his beliefs from Gnostic mysteries, theories and ideas. No, he got them right from the Kabbalah. 
In any event, none of what Weissman says here has any bearing at all on 2C line as we elucidate it, because we do not get it from the Gnostics or the Kabbalah or the Masons. That's crazy. But now Weissman continues with more relevant, but nevertheless incorrect claims under the heading on page 46 of his book, Talmudic and Rabbinical Literature. So now we're getting to the actual core of it, almost, because he will get to the Kabbalah. He does recognize the Kabbalah, but he's trying to portray it as a source independent of these other sources. And he also attributes to it an age much more ancient than it actually is. So that's the crux of the problem there. On page 46 of his book, Weissman says, the Talmud is a collection of Jewish tradition on matters of civil and religious law and religious doctrine. It sprung from two schools of thought, one from Babylon and the other in Palestine. The oral traditions of the Talmud were written down by 500 AD. Among these traditions, we find the basic concept of the satanic seedline doctrine, as stated in the book Yebamoth. And he quotes Yebamoth. Rabbi Johanan stated, When the serpent copulated with Eve, he infused her with lust. That's all he cites right there, one sentence. And of course, the Genesis account says that first Eve had desired the tree. The Talmud is also a corruption of the truth, but that does not change what is truth. According to Weissman's theory here, if anything interpreted from the Bible is found in any of these heretical philosophies or writings which he cites, then the interpretation of scripture is invalid. That's Weissman's position, and that is a faulty methodology because it assumes that everything found in these heretical philosophies is wrong, and it can be used to discredit many otherwise valid biblical teachings, and it certainly can. Not everything in it is wrong. A lot of the stuff in the Kabbalah is actually true. Or, like you said, nobody would accept it at all. It's many corruptions of the truth, but it's still, much of it is actually true. Not everything in the, in the Kabbalah or the Talmud is a lie. <clears throat> Excuse me. I wonder how familiar <clears throat> Weissman is with um, the Kabbalah and the Talmud. You know, if he really was a Jew, he, he probably went to a synagogue and schemed with them. Well, yeah, he may have gone to a synagogue to do this research. <laughs> and he's evidently, to me, an index researcher, right? And everything he's, he, he mentions indexes, and, and that makes him an index researcher. He wants us to search indexes. That's what he did. I consider index researchers to be inferior researchers. You're a good researcher if you read 
the entire body of what you're citing so that you could really understand the context of what it means. Now, that doesn't have to be that you read the whole Talmud, but what it does mean is you at least read the, the entire book or chapter, or maybe two chapters, so that you really can be confident about the sense of what you're, you're citing, that, that it's in the correct context. So index researchers are, are horrible, and, and I've seen many problems in, in the past. If, if you, um, wow, I've brought this up. I brought this up in podcasts before. There was a tribe of um, men in Europe who were said to be from the coast of the Caspian Sea. And I'm sorry, but offhand, the name of the tribe escapes me right now at 9.30 on a Wednesday morning. So in the index to George Rawlinson's otherwise, to George Rawlinson's otherwise excellent um, translation of Herodotus, in the index, you'll find that this tribe is described as having flat noses and woolly hair. Now, often um, university professors like George Rawlinson would assign the construction of the index and other parts of the book to students, and that's probably what happened. So a student found this passage in Herodotus and, and wrote in the index that the tribe of men had flat noses and woolly hair, but that's simply not true because if you go back and read the passage and what Herodotus had really said, he said that their horses had flat noses and woolly hair. But I have seen Christian identity writers follow the index and say that Herodotus talked about men with flat noses and woolly hair in Europe. And I'm astounded because I've actually read Herodotus and discovered the error in the index before seeing those citations. And I'm like, why did they just follow the index rather than actually read the substance of what was being said? The Christian identity writer that said that, I think was E. Raymond Kaft. I don't really remember. I could be wrong, but I think it was. And just because it was E. Raymond Kaft, and he's held in esteem in, in the Christian identity community, several other CI pastors and writers have followed him in that mistake. But it's just one small example of the dangers of being an index researcher, of taking for granted that what you see in the index is really what appears in the text. You have to go back, read the text, and get the context of, of the entire passage or, or even chapter to really understand it. So there's dangers in searching indexes and putting things together from indexes because you're taking shortcuts. It's not good. It's not a good practice. So that's about my 10th long digression in what's going to be a long program. I'm sorry. So according to Weissman's theory, if anything interpreted from the Bible is found in any of these heretical philosophies or writings, which he cites, then the interpretation of scripture is invalid. That's faulty. It's not true. And that method can be used to discredit many otherwise valid biblical teachings. 
it doesn't hold water. Continuing with citations from the Talmud, we advance to page 47. And Weissman says, very simply, he doesn't even cite it. He just says, a similar statement, similar to the one from the first rabbi, that when the serpent copulated with Eve, he infused her with lust. Weissman says, a similar statement is also made in the Talmudic book, Shabbath, or Sabbath, 146a, referring to a particular chapter, chapter I believe, or we could call it a paragraph, but it would be called a chapter. So, Sabbath 146a. <clears throat> Why didn't Weissman cite this similar statement? He just mentions it. Why didn't he cite it? I'm going to cite a larger portion of it. This is, and I have a link here to, to a copy of the Talmud Online, Tractate Sabbath, Folio 146a, and it says, in part, but I have a larger part than, well, Weissman didn't even cite any part, right? He just mentioned it. It says, the serpent came upon Eve. He injected a lust into her. As for the Israelites who stood at Mount Sinai, their lustfulness departed. The idolaters who did not stand at Mount Sinai, their lustfulness did not depart. And the insinuation there is that the Jews had no lust because they, their ancestors stood at Mount Sinai. They were pure. But all the heathen nations, their ancestors weren't at Sinai, so they still had lust. And that's really incredible. But that's what this tractate Sabbath is insinuating. So we see a ridiculous analogy is being made by a Talmudic rabbi which does not resemble anything taught by any two-seed-line identity Christian or by Scripture itself. Of course, historically, the ancient Israelites continued to have problems with lust long after Sinai. So the rabbi is just another Jewish fool. But while Weissman is a continual liar, every liar tells the truth at least in part. So Weissman is correct where he says... The Talmud, of course, is well known for its topics of sexual perversion and debauchery and how it condones acts of sodomy, bestiality, adultery, pedophilia, and rape. Now, of course, this still does not discredit our interpretation of Genesis chapter 3. Oddly, Weissman understands that the authors of the Talmud were wicked, and he also understands that they were Jews. But he insisted earlier in chapter 4 that the Jews who opposed Christ were all pure Israelites. How could their Talmud be evil? Yet throughout the Old Testament, it is Canaanites who condoned and engaged and engaged in acts of sodomy, bestiality, adultery, pedophilia, and rape. So why does Weissman deny that the Jews were actually Canaanites through Esau? Why does he deny that? He's in conflict with himself, in other words. That's an observation. Yeah, so why we, didn't they accept Christianity? Right. They couldn't. They couldn't because it's not their spirit. They don't have the spirit of God. They have the spirit of sodomy, bestiality, adultery, pedophilia, and rape. That's why modern Jews do exactly what the Sodomites did in Sodom and Gomorrah. They're no different.
they promote pornography and prostitution and, and race mixing fornication and adultery. By their fruits, you know them. That's what Christ told us. So if you see men today exhibit the fruits of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know that you're dealing with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, with the Canaanites. By their fruits, you know them. Real simple. So Weissman continues. Talmudic concepts come from the Jewish sages or rabbis and from their rabbinical writings. That's pretty obvious. In this body of writings, we find the origins of the Satanic Seedline Doctrine. For instance, in the Jewish Encyclopedia, under the subheading, subheading Eve in Rabbinical Literature, it states, Cain's real father was not Adam, but one of the demons. Seth was Eve's first child by Adam. Then Weissman responds, and he says, Speaking on the subject of Satan, as taught in rabbinical teachings, the Jewish encyclopedia states, Satan was the father of Cain. So congratulations, Jews, you got something right, because that's also what Yahshua Christ was saying in John 8, 44. Again, Weissman insists that Jews are always wrong, but the Talmud was not written by all historical accounts until at least the 3rd century AD. And much of it was not written until the 6th century AD. So, was the Talmud the origin of these concepts? No, it wasn't. The Apocryphal Protoevangelion of James, a Christian work, is esteemed by scholars to have been written in the middle of the 2nd century, long before most of the Talmud. In that work, Joseph of Nazareth, finding Mary already pregnant by the Holy Spirit, when he had not yet consummated his marriage to her, is depicted as having exclaimed, Is the history of Adam repeated in me? That shows that the author of the work believed that Eve's first child was from someone other than Adam. So this did not originate in the Talmud. It couldn't have. It's in the Protoevangelion of James, hundreds of years before the Talmud. Furthermore, the apocryphal fourth book of Maccabees is esteemed to have been written in the first two centuries of the Christian era and before 130 AD. It was known to Eusebius and Jerome. So it clearly preceded the Talmud. It's clearly older than the Talmud. In that work, we find a righteous woman described as having exclaimed that I was a pure virgin and went not beyond my father's house, but I took care of the built-up rib. No destroyer of the desert or ravisher of the plain injured me, nor did the destructive, deceitful snake make spoil of my chaste virginity. And I remained with my husband during the period of my prime. So, making such an allegory, the author of Four Maccabees 
clearly understood that the Genesis chapter 3 seduction of Eve was a sexual seduction, just as Paul of Tarsus understood it, which we also explained at length earlier here in this series of presentations. So these two writings, each of which are older than the Talmud, if these two writings, older than the Talmud, show that early Christians, at least some early Christians, understood Genesis chapter 3 the way we understand it, then Charles Weissman is clearly lying about the origin of two seed line, or as he calls it, serpent seed line doctrine. In truth, the Bible itself is the origin of the doctrine, and the ancient Jews, who understood Hebrew idioms better than Weissman, had also understood it. It's that simple. They don't get everything wrong. Weissman continues with his citations from the Talmud, and he says, In the Midrash, which is a rabbinical exposition of the Pentateuch, the Torah, we find the following statement. The mother of all living means the mother of all life. For Rabbi Simon said, throughout the entire 130 years during which Adam held aloof from Eve, the male demons were made ardent by her and she bore. While the female demons were inflamed by Adam and they bore. And that's from the Midrash Rabbah, Volume 1, the tractate Bereshiv, chapter 20, I guess. Now, this is another ridiculous Jewish perversion of truth. But once again, it is not anything similar to what we believe. The Jews had to understand what Genesis 3 was really saying, as early Christians understood it. Yet, they evidently only sought to corrupt and confounded. They didn't seek to actually relate what Genesis 3 actually said. They made all these fables and embellishments. They were actually yeah, mocking. Following the Hollywood style propaganda that there's these, you know, demons with pitchforks and hooves rather than that they are the demons. Right. It seems that was their agenda there. Right. It's also a, a, a way to create distractions. Exactly. Now moving on to page 48 of Weissman's book. The principle behind the Midrash is to find a new meaning in Scripture, one not intended by the writers of Scripture. It thus asserts a new meaning for Eve being the mother of all living. That meaning is that she had sexual encounters with demons during the 130 years before Seth was born. Well, Genesis chapter 3 refutes that, and the rabbis evidently didn't get it. They evidently sought to purposely corrupt Genesis chapter 3 because as part of Eve's punishment, God pronounced that thy desire shall be to thy husband. So that refutes the concept that Eve had, had, had sex with demons for 130 years. And she told him that she would be subject to her husband. Adam and Eve couldn't have continued sinning in that manner 
for 130 years after their punishment was already pronounced. That's ridiculous. But like you said, it's the Hollywood version of Genesis chapter 3 offered up by 3rd century or 4th century rabbis. And that's what we would expect from them. We believe that Eve is the mother of all living only because she is the mother of all those who were made in the image of Adam. The first man with the spirit of God. Here Weissman admits that the Jews merely perverted the truth, but in reference to Eve's seduction, he asserts that they were devising something original, which is not true. Something entirely original, which is not true. They were also merely corrupting the truth in relation to that. Now Weissman ends almost where he should have started. As many of these other philosophies he mentioned were only belaboring what is found in the Kabbalah. Bill, the um, Eve, the mother of all living, is that also related to when Christ rebukes the Pharisees and says, is Yahweh the God of the dead? No, he's the God of the living. Well, well uh, yes, yeah, I'm the same concept. But essentially all Adamites with a living spirit from Yahweh. It's the same concept. Just like yeah. the term all flesh is used to describe all of the children of Israel living at any one time in the prophecy of Joel. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh is the, the term all flesh is defined where he is speaking to the children of Israel when he said that. And after he says that, he says that your daughters and, and your sons, your daughters shall be dream dreams, your sons shall, shall see visions. He's talking about all flesh in reference to all of the children of Israel who are alive at the particular time when the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. They are all flesh. It's not every um, moving, breathing creature on a planet. That's ridiculous within the context in which the words are stated. Under the heading, the Kabbalah, which Weissman finally gets to, the Kabbalah is the esoteric mystic lore of Judaism based upon an occult interpretation of the Bible. It has been handed down, and I don't agree with most of what he says here, it has been handed down as secret doctrine to the initiated, and that's just a lie. It was spread to all of the Christian alchemists and academics in Europe. It was openly spread to them to get them to accept it. Its origin, however, is obscure. The birthplace of the Kabbalah was Palestine, and that's not true. But it was in Babylonia during the Middle Ages. He defines that as 552. 1000 AD, that it experienced its first substantial systematic development. Its occult religious philosophy was developed by certain Jewish rabbis over the centuries. And while we do not doubt a Jewish origin of the Kabbalah, it seems to have actually originated in Spain in the 12th century. And the Zohar, a significant part of the Kabbalah, was first published in the 13th century. I have not yet seen anything authoritative 
which proves it to be older, although it certainly does incorporate many facets of older systems, Neoplatonism, Jewish Gnosticism, and older philosophies and mysticism. It claims for itself a more ancient origin, and Jews typically claim for it a more ancient origin, but those claims cannot be established. Interestingly, Weissman accepts the Jewish claims that Kabbalah is very ancient and an interpretation of the Bible, but that is certainly not true. So now he introduces another citation from Nesta Webster, where he says, since the Kabbalah is based on a mystical and pagan interpretation of the scriptures, it provides rabbis the means to convey their perverted viewpoints contrary to the original intent of scripture. That the Kabbalists taught the underlying concepts of satanic seedline doctrine is revealed by Nesta Webster. Now he quotes Nesta Webster, and it's only about 10 or 12 words, 12, 12 words. And there's two ellipses. And wherever you see 12 words and two ellipses, you know, the three little dots indicating that there's a space that you're not quoting the entire passage. There's two ellipses in 12 words. Wherever you see that, you should go back and check the original citation because something's being left out and you want to make sure that the context is correct. So the 12 words are, in the Jewish Kabbalah, Eve is accused of cohabiting with the serpent. Big deal. The Jews have upheld that all through history. Why wouldn't they uphold it in the 13th century? Here, Weissman did another disservice by only providing a small part of a longer statement. Notice that he has two ellipses here around the phrase Eve is, one before and one after, and that alone should be a red flag. In this passage where she made this comment, Webster was discussing Manichaeism, which, if it is possible, is a much more wicked, is much more wicked in its teachings on Genesis than even the Kabbalah. Manichaeism can also be traced back to Jewish Gnosticism, right? Manichaeism is a third century Persian heresy, which sought to combine elements of Christianity, Jewish Gnosticism, and paganism with the concept of dualism found in the older Persian religion, which is Zoroastrianism. This passage is also referenced later in Webster's book, in the passage from Webster that Weissman cited earlier in this chapter. While we will not repeat her descriptions of Manichaeanism or Manichaeism is Manichaeism. That's a kind of a tongue twister to me, I'm sorry. While we will not just repeat her descriptions of that, we will provide the entire statement she made in the passage on the Kabbalah itself. So, speaking of Manichaeism, she says, much the same idea may be found in the Jewish Kabbalah, wherever it is said, 
and here's the part that Weissman left out. Wherever it is said that Adam, after other abominable practices, cohabited with female devils, while Eve consoled herself with male devils, so that whole races of demons were born into the world. Eve is, he cited that part, also, that's his other ellipses, accused of cohabiting with the serpent. In the Yalkut Shimoni, it is also related that during the 130 years that Adam lived apart from Eve, he begat a generation of devils, spirits, and hobgoblins. So, in reality, while the two statements in the Kabbalah are nothing close to what we believe at Christogenia, or what traditional 2 seed line identity Christians have ever believed, Weissman purposely tried to make it look that way. So he only took a very small portion of Webster's statement, and he omitted the rest. That is one more lie in a long list of lies created by Charles Weissman throughout this book. Continuing with the citation from the Kabbalah, Weissman says on page 49 of his book, one Kabbalistic work is the Zohar, which dates from the 12th, second century AD. It states the following in regard to Genesis 4.1, and I almost slipped up because I believe it it comes from the 12th century AD, and that's when it really dates to. That's when it, it was first published in the 13th century. So it doesn't come from the second century. Although ideas in it, of course, may have come from even before the second century. So, quoting the Zohar. Now Adam clave to that unclean spirit, and his wife clung to it at first and received defilement from it. Hence, when Adam begat a son, the son was the son of the impure spirit. Now, notice there that the Zohar is still attributing Adam to be, Cain to be from Adam. It says, thus there were two sons, one from the unclean spirit and one after Adam had repented. Thus, one was from the pure side and one from the impure. Rabbi Eleazar said, when the serpent injected his impurity into Eve, she absorbed it. And so when Adam had intercourse with her, she bore two sons, one from the impure side and one from the side of Adam. It was natural, too, that Cain, coming from the side of the angel of death, should kill his brother. The unclean spirit, Weissman tells us is an esoteric reference to the nature of the evil serpent who is himself unclean and defiled the world. It is said that all the unclean spirits are akin to the evil serpent. Excuse me. Wow. First, there is no proof that the Zohar is from the second century. The Aramaic in which it was written is not classical Aramaic, but it is an obscure dialect. And medieval Spanish and Portuguese words are found in the text of the Zohar. It is not from the second century. Wherever Weissman got his claim 
for the antiquity of the book, it is a lie. Furthermore, once again we see in this passage, in the Zohar, that there is a corruption of truth in the form of many embellishments upon what which is actually found in the idioms of Genesis 3. The Genesis 3 story is really pretty simple. And these Jews, like you said, have twisted it into the Hollywood version. Weissman omitted the Hollywood version. He purposely skipped over much of that in many of his quotes. But here, he includes it. Yeah, it seems that they kept trying uh, whole variances of possible ways that they could corrupt it until eventually um, they was able to just completely admit it instead that Cain and Abel were both from Adam and that was a simpler way. That way they could have raised the two seed line. Right. He includes parts of the Hollywood version here. He didn't include it all. He never included <laughs> the parts about the coupling with demons for 130 years that Nesta Webster provided. He purposely skipped over that. He didn't include it from the, um, from the citation that he didn't even quote. He, he only made a reference to a, a citation in the Talmud and said that a similar statement is found here, but he didn't actually provide the statement. He only included it in um, one portion where he did quote from the Midrash. He included the Hollywood version in part. So Yeah, he's clearly got an agenda. He's clearly trying to cover that bit up and hide it and just make it look like identical, as you said, to two seedlines. Right. In most of these passages that he cited, he is trying his best to make it look identical to two seedlines instead of... Um, citing entire passages from Nesta Webster or, or the parts of the Talmud that he quoted. And if he decided an entire passage every time, his chapter might be two pages longer, but the truth would have come out that what two seed line teaches isn't anything like what the Kabbalah says. And like you said, and, and this is important too, because we understand that these other races were already here and they were from the fallen angels and the serpent that seduced Adam and Eve. That that was, as Revelation chapter 12 informs us, that there was an entire race of fallen angels. That they were already here, they were already fallen, they were in a human state, they probably started out in a human state because they didn't necessarily fall out of the sky and they weren't necessarily spirit demons to begin with. They were men just like us, as we have proven that they appear to be men all throughout the scripture. Oh, I had a um, the, question the, I forgot to ask last series. Uh, okay. Well, Did, let me just think, finish um, this real quick. It's very possible that, you know, um, whatever you want to call them, fallen angels, they understood that when Adam was created, what his purpose was, that they were doomed, and that one of the angels realized that he had to slip in and try and corrupt Eve, that that's a possible motive, even though it doesn't matter. Okay, I'll answer that in, in a moment. I will answer it, because it relates to what's going on today. Um... 
where we believe that the fallen angels and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the origin of the other races and all of the mixed races, which includes the Jews, the Jews have interpreted Genesis 3 in a manner which deflects that understanding from them, saying that these serpents and, and these demons and these goblins are only spirits. But we believe that they're actually physical people walking all around us. And we believe that that is what the scripture teaches, as we have established on, on many occasions, even throughout this series. So, did the fallen angels understand that they had to corrupt Adam and Eve? The, and, and this relates to today. The bottom line is that there was a corruption of Yahweh's creation. And as even Weissman admitted, the serpent was an, an intelligent entity that had an agenda that had its own world order, which was contrary to the world order of God. I really believe that the corruption of Adam and Eve was initiated by the serpent because they hate everything righteous. They have a, a, a congenital hatred, an innate hatred of everything righteous that comes from God. And we see the same thing happening today as they gain more and more political power that they hate our right, white race. They want to exterminate whiteness. They call for an end to whiteness. They also want to eliminate the rule of law. It's innate. It's the same spirit in the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 that's in all these other races and these Jews of today. They hate everything that's wholesome and, and righteous and obedient to God. So they have to undermine and destroy white society. It's the same thing going on today. And we have millions of Eves all over the place and millions of Adams who are letting Eve run off with the serpent and get herself seduced to produce more half-breed kids. Yeah, that definitely relates to today. Yeah, just all you got to do is just set up a white charity and uh, they'll come for you, you know, and try and do anything good for your people and they'll, they'll come to destroy you. They'll persecute you. Absolutely. Just uphold the law of God and they hate you. All you have to do is declare that you should keep the Ten Commandments and they hate you. Ten lousy commandments. And none of them are hard. Those Ten Commandments, un until recently, most um, people within the white society, and a lot of them that weren't even white, would have thought the Ten Commandments would have looked at them in a positive light. They're easy to keep. But now they're hated because they've had that they have the upper hand in, in, or they think they do, in political power. Now they could really start to show their true fruits and willfully destruct white society.
And that's been building up for a century or longer. And, and with the Jews themselves, it's been incubating for 20 centuries. So there you have it. It's the same fallen angels looking to destroy everything that's good, wholesome, and righteous. Now Weissman concludes his chapter, <clears throat> his final paragraph in this chapter. It is interesting that in this statement is found a premise, and, and he's referring to the last statement from the Zohar. It is interesting that in this statement is found a premise for one of the teachings of the Satanic Seedline Doctrine. That is, that Eve was impregnated by the serpent and then by Adam, thus giving birth to Cain and Abel as twins. That two males can impregnate the same woman and produce twins is extremely rare and by itself casts grave doubts on its validity. Now that right there is a lie. That, to, that, that a woman, until recent times in white society anyway, that a woman who gets impregnated by, who has intercourse with more than two males or with more than one male in any given night, that used to be extremely rare. <laughs> Whoredom used to be extremely rare. Now it's quite common. The concept of a dual impregnation is not or was not actually necessary to support the satanic seedline doctrine as there is support for Cain and Abel not being twins. He's citing Jubilees chapter 4, a book of which the authenticity I would have to reject on, on several, for several um, basic reasons, but that's okay. Having the serpent produce Cain and, and Abel produce Adam, I'm sorry, Having the serpent produce Cain and Adam producing Abel in separate conceptions and births would have met the requirements of the doctrine. So I assert something that is bizarre and improbable when it is not necessary. It seems that there was a definite Kabbalistic influence in the construction of this doctrine. And that is wrong. It doesn't necessarily have to be a definite Kabbalistic influence because over the years, over the centuries, many interpretators have interpreted Genesis chapter 4 and Cain and Abel and their births to have been at the same time, that Cain and Abel were twins. But many interpreters haven't. And the text can be interpreted Either way, so Weissman discredits the two seed line doctrine by claiming that the superfecundation, that's the technical term, the technical term for twins in the same womb produced by two different biological fathers is heteropaternal superfecundation. So we'll abbreviate that to superfecundation. Weissman discredits two seed line by claiming that the superfecundation is found in the Kabbalah, but then admits that Genesis 4.1 does not necessarily describe superfecundation. There's an ancient Greek poem 
the shield of Heracles. I've cited it before in podcasts in relation to Genesis 4.1. It's commonly attributed to the poet Hesiod, who is dated to as early as the 8th century BC, but he definitely didn't write any later than the 7th. There is a story in that poem of the birth of Heracles, the son of Zeus, and a twin half-brother named Iphicles, who was born of a mortal man. Same womb, same time. So superfecundation was also known in the ancient world. And there are occasional and well-documented reports of it today. I've seen several reports over the last several years of white women who had twins and one baby is black and the other baby is white. And that doesn't mean that, that, this, was, um, that this was miraculous. That means that she was a damned whore and her, her white boyfriend was being cut by a Negro. That's what it means. And, and that's going on all over, the, all over the world today. However, we do not claim that Cain and Abel were twins. And it does not matter to us if they were twins or not. So in any event, Weissman's assertions and criticisms, I believe, fail him completely. We have never insisted upon something that is bizarre and improbable when it is not necessary, even though at diverse times others may have made that insistence. I know that um, Wesley Swift did. Wesley Swift did insist that they were twins. And I'm certain other Christian identity pastors or, or writers have, have insisted that, but we don't. And it's, Weissman's right, it's not necessary. But that doesn't mean that it came from the Kabbalah because a thousand people could read Genesis 4 and get the impression, 990 of them might get the impression that it was a, a twin birth. Right, Weissman's making it like a two-seed line hangs by a thread, and that if he just proves one thing, the whole thing falls apart. Right, and that's just, it's bullshit. It's not true. Our view of Genesis chapters 3 and 4 is very practical, and it, it's, we, we give it an academic footing. I mean, Genesis chapter 4, right from Arjun's Hexapla, Verse one, can you could see that it, it was corrupt, and there were drastically different meanings, four or five different meanings interpreted into Greek from um, verse four b that basically leave us wondering what the hell Eve said, because the, there's a gloss in the text, obviously, and for that reason, interpreters from the second century. AD and, and or the third century BC, when the Septuagint was translated, interpreters have had a difficult time determining what Genesis 4.1 really says. And, and then in Genesis 3, we have many of, uh, we, every single idiom in Genesis chapter 3 that we claim relates to sexual relations or describes sexual relations, every allegory or idiom we have support for either elsewhere in the Bible or in 
ancient literature that's even older than the Bible, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, where much of the language from Genesis chapter 3 actually appears in relation to an untoward or improper sexual relation. So what we make our case on many academic grounds that Weissman never even addressed in his book. He never even addressed most of our real arguments. Yeah, and um, as I said before, I'd love to have seen him try and um, include Revelation and the prophets and, you know, show that they were all wrong and take it all apart because I'm sure he couldn't have, he wouldn't have been able to. No. It, he he just made passing mention of Revelation chapter 12, but he didn't really get into it in, in any great depth at all. He couldn't. He wasn't even a Christian. Why believe Christ when you're not a Christian? Why believe Christ when you only believe that Christ is, is slandering people, calling them bad names? Calling those poor persecuted Jews serpents and vipers and the offspring of vipers. Why believe them if you don't believe that? Wow. Well, yeah, the first question would be, why are you even here, you know, to Wiseman? Uh, why are you even in a Christian assembly? What's your agenda if you're not even a Christian? Right. This is Weissman's attempt to smear to C-Line throughout this chapter. And it fails. Weissman failed. This is the best he could do. And I don't accept one word of anything he said here as being necessary or true or as being an... an a legitimate conclusion to what the literature says. So we've proven that 2C line is older than the Talmud. And, and we've proven that Weissman cherry-picked his, um, his supposed evidence that 2C line is from the Talmud and omitted all the fantastic, or, or at least most of the fantastic Hollywood accounts found in the town. I mean, it, it's, I mean, the Jews are, are the creators of comic books today and they created comic books then. And, and the Talmudic descriptions of, of Genesis chapter three, it is, it, it could go straight into a comic book. All of them could go straight into comic books. I could see the comic books, the Jews and, and the perversions they love to draw, and Eve having sex with demons for 130 years, that they could get a series of 500 years of comic books out of that. Oh, they did. That's the Talmud. <laughs> they did. And now they teach it as a religion. It's crazy. That's not what we, um, what we adhere to. That's not our doctrine. Weissman's a deceiver. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Bill. Always a pleasure. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the living, not the God of the dead, the Kabbalists, the Gnostics and Masons. Thanks, Bill. And evidently not the God of Charles Weissman. Thank you. <laughs> Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.